with Judges chapter 9. Before we start, let me open our time in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for another opportunity yet again to study and meditate on your word. And Lord, we ask that, the, that you intercede in our hearts and our mind. Um, allow us to think clearly about your word and even areas in our life where we need to turn away from. And Lord, we know that as we go through this book, it is a book of compromise after compromise, but Lord, you are always so gracious and kind to give us new mercies every day. And we ask that as we look through this text that we reflect not on other people, but in our own lives to see if we are falling short in any way. I pray, Lord, that you can be with me, allow me to communicate clearly, and allow me to communicate your word faithfully, Lord, and allow all of us to apply your word, not just for this evening or this weekend, but for the rest of our lives, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. In history, and even today, there are this stigma towards those that we call traitors. You know, do you know what traitors are? I'm not talking about like people that, like Trader Joe, not that, like not the person who just buy things, buy and sell things. I mean traitor in a sense of someone that turns against you. Uh, in our time, we, we use this term. We don't usually, we're not in war right now, so we don't usually use that term that often. But usually when there is war, uh, those that are considered traitors are, 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 are looked down upon because, you know, you trust these people. You, you look to them for safety and they, they turn on you. And then we know that this is nothing new, but it's always, it always existed. And usually those that are traitors are someone that you never expect. It's someone that is within the midst of uh, your peers. And in history, we see this. I googled top 10 traitors in all of history, and the number one person was Judas. I figured, okay, I won't use Judas. Uh, but there's one in particular individual that I found it to be interesting. He was a man in China. His name is Wang Jingwei. Uh, and he was, uh, from what my research, he was a he was one of those uh, revolutionary people during the time when China was still uh, under dynasties. Uh, there was a, he, he was one of those guys that uh, wanted to revolt against that. He said that dynasty should be uh, done away with and the people that, that run the government should be from the people and for the people. And uh, he was known as a hero at the time. And one reason why he was a hero was because he was, uh, during this, the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, uh, they, they arrested him and they were going to execute him. But uh, not long after he was arrested, the entire Qing dynasty was like overthrown and he was free. Uh, so he was this charismatic leader. He was someone that uh, was able to communicate really well and, and, and knew how to um, just rally everyone up for this cause of making this new form of government. And throughout his life, there was different uh, tension with other po uh, politicians. But he was just known as a hero. He was known as a hero because of his stance against uh, the previous regime. But in the early 1930s to the 40s, the Japanese invaded. The Japanese invaded China, and there was this, uh, this war between the two. 
and everything was tense. China was, was closed off, and they were not advanced in any sense of the word. Uh, they, they didn't have tanks. They didn't have planes. They didn't have any technological advance or even weaponry to defend themselves. And this individual, uh, he was supposed to be like this hero in defending China, but at one point he defected. He decided to turn and sided with the Japanese. He made this new deal with the Japanese that oh, we give this one particular land to the Japanese. That that it's like a it was in his mind it would be some sort of peace treaty. And this particular land is Namking. If you guys are familiar with the history, this is a I've been there once, and it's it's a really sad place. There's like the Japanese were horrible to the Chinese people. There you see like this mass graves and you know pictures of like children and women dying and getting killed and beheaded and all of that. And he gave this little place up and he said, oh, this is, the Japanese are good. They're on our side. Um, and obviously the, the Chinese people saw him as a traitor. Like, why would you do this? Why would you turn on us? We once looked to you and now you're on the side of the enemy. There was an assassination attempt on his life and he, he, didn't, he didn't die, obviously. Well, he didn't die at the moment. He was taken to a hospital. And it was a few days, it was about like a year after that, actually, where the Japanese forfeited. They gave up. This is after America entered in World War II, bombed them, and it was over, and they quit. Um, but he died a year before that. And he was known as the national traitor. They like, looked at this person, and then even now, you know how China's like, like there's all these different political views and like uh, there's a billions of people. There's, they're, they're, they have different views on everything, but they, as a whole nation, even to today, hate this one individual. They, they use his name as a derogatory term to mean someone that's a traitor. It's like when we use the term, oh, you Judas. They have their term for it, and it's this person's name. The biggest threat is always from within, whether it's China in the, in the, in the World War II times, whether it's Israel back in the Old Testament or even in the modern-day church. The biggest threat is always from within. The biggest threat to us in our church is not the liberal Christians or the liberals or Democrats that come and try to impose some sort of law on us. The biggest threat are not other religions. It's not the Mormons. It's not the Muslims. It's not the Jehovah Witnesses. It's not any cult that you can think of. The biggest threat is not the LGBTQIA and whatever alphabets they want to add to their name. The biggest threat to the church is from people within the church. In the life of the church, there's this grim reality that sometimes we need to be mindful of those around us. We understand this. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warns the people that there will be people amongst, among themselves that are going to turn them away from God. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Throughout the New Testament, there was all these phrases. Most of the epistles have these warnings against false teachers. In Galatians, in Galatians Paul asked them, who has bewitched you? Who has, who has confused you? 
In the book of Jude, we see that uh, there's a warning against false teachers. And throughout the entire New Testament, there's always this understanding that there are false teachers that can come within the church. And false teachers in the church aren't always so overt. They're not always out there saying, oh, I am a false teacher. Oftentimes, they, they, they start looking like us. They have the same views as us. But as time progresses, as they live compromised in their own lives, they begin to turn. And, it, and they're not satisfied with just themselves turn. They want to take others with them. So how do I guard myself from that? Now I want to go to two different approaches. Not just, look, not just think about, okay, how do I guard myself from people around me that might be a threat to the church? I want you to look at yourself. Am I a threat to the church? It's very easy to look at other people in the church and say, oh, okay, I think that person might be a threat. Let's just go in like church discipline with this person right now. So I'd rather, I'd rather you look at yourself. What are the signs in your life that can make you a threat to the church? False teachers are always threat because they begin with these small and subtle compromises, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And this is the theme of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a book where the entire nation of Israel compromised. They did, they did what was right in their own eyes, and God punished them for it. And just for recap, this is the, chapter 9 is really the last chapter of the Gideon saga, or the, or the, or the life of Gideon. Uh, chapter 6, we remember Gideon, he was the cowardly savior. Right? He was one that, that God came and the angel, as the angel of the Lord and told him that you're going to be this valiant warrior. And he was like, no, that's not me. Find someone else. And God told him that you're going to be the guy. And he, and he gives him these different signs and, and, and um, yeah, gives him these different signs for him to be brave, to trust in the Lord. Uh, chapter 7, Gideon um, makes this army. God tells him, he has, he has about a whole horde of people that was willing to fight, and God told them to narrow it down, to bring it to a smaller and a smaller group. And remember that was the, the, the dog drinking thing? You know, they were like lapping like dogs in the water. That was like their test to see whether or not, uh, and the reason for that wasn't because like, it's, it's not so much the position. I think that's what Derek uh, mentioned. It was good because different commentators actually talk about how, oh, like the people that drank it this way means that they're repaired and others. It's not, that's not the point. The point was that the people that, that, that drank a specific way, was the, the smaller number was the one that God chose. These, these 300 men was the one that God chose to fight. And he wanted these the smaller people, the smaller group of people to go because if there, was a bigger, if there was a greater amount, they would become boastful and prideful and think that the reason why they want is because of their own numbers. Last week, uh, we talked about the life of Gideon, how he essentially turned against his people. He, uh, he was out of his own pride, uh, disciplined, and, um, and destroyed his own kind. And then he told the people in chapter 8, verse 22, to have, to have God rule over them. Verse 22 of chapter 8. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son. And then we'll get to this in a second, how they, this is actually something that will haunt them. Continuing on for verse 24. You have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But God said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And then this is where we end. Remember, he, has that, he made that golden ephod, that, that golden kind of tunic thing. And then people, became, it became a stumbling block for the rest of Israel. They began worshiping, and or the hearts were slowly being turned because 
of this golden ephod. And at the end of chapter 8, there was this 40-year peace, but then there was this son that comes into play. Jerubbabel, or Gideon, had, had a whole bunch of wives, and he had a whole bunch of sons, and one of these sons was from a concubine named Abimelech. This one individual is mainly, is the, is mainly the focal point of chapter 9. I know God is the hero of the story, but this is really, in some ways you can say that he's the villain of chapter 9. And we're going to see how Abimelech is the guy that is a threat from within the camp of Israel. So as a way to hang our thoughts, how do I know if I'm a threat or how do I know, how do I guard myself from potential threats within the church? Here are three signs, three indicators, and three things that, that people that are false teachers or people that are threat to the church, this is what they look like. First is that they ignore sin as sin. A threat to the church is if someone, or perhaps you yourself, ignore that sin is sin. You ignore the fact that the God's word, or God's prohibition are things that are actually sin. You refuse to acknowledge what you do as sin. Look at the beginning of chapter, one, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, went to Shechem. Abimelech, he was a child of this harlot, and this already tells you that Gideon, in the end of chapter 8, failed to live up to God's commandments in terms of having a marriage covenant. In the beginning of Genesis, God established that it should be one man and one woman, and Gideon failed to, to submit to God's word. And this is a result of his own sin. Now, this isn't to say that Gideon, I mean, Abimelech is, is going to be judged for that, but his actions are a result of someone else's sin. He, he exists because Gideon failed to submit to the Lord. Gideon uh, had this child, Abimelech, and Abimelech, uh, he, because he's a child of a prostitute, there's no inheritance for him. There's no legal standing in society for him. And just, just looking at these, this background of the Gideon's life you, and, and, and Abimelech's background, you understand that sin complicates everything in life. Sin complicates your own life, and it complicates those around you. You aren't getting punished for sins of others, but you can sometimes experience pain by sin done by other people. No one is ever contained. No sin is ever contained to yourself. My wife and I are doing premarital counseling, and I'm reading this book. And it's really interesting because it t- tells you about asking all these, it's almost like nosy type questions. You know, they're like, like probing at their life. And at first I didn't understand, it's like, oh wow, this person is just asking all these random questions. But they all have this intent. And a lot of it is just background, like what was your childhood like? What are some things that you uh, have gone through? And some things are horrible. Some people have gone through some sort of abuse as a child, and it affects the way that they think about life as an adult. Some people go through different pains and struggles, and it still impacts them today. And it should be reality for us to remember and take sin seriously. Your sin may not have immediate effect on you, but it may affect others in your life later on. Gideon had this false humility. Again, Gideon is Abimelech's father. It's evident because he named his son Abimelech. And in the Old Testament, names are significant. That when you name someone something, it's supposed to show, it will tell you something about them. Like Israel, the names would be like, he struggles with the Lord. And that's what be what Israel is like. He, Israel as a nation is constantly wrestling with God. 
we think of Abraham, he's, he's the son of, he's a father of many sons. Abimelech means my father is king. Remember how in chapter 8, verse 22, or chapter 20, uh, 20, verse 23, Gideon said he does not want to be king, but he acted like a king. And he left a legacy on his son and calling himself, calling his son, my daddy is king, or my father is king. You notice that Abimelech went to this place called Shechem. Uh, Shechem is a significant place. This is unique because in Genesis 12, this is where Abraham and God made this covenant. You know, the Abrahamic covenant was in Shechem. It's a, it's a notorious place in the Jewish mind. This is what to bring into this idea that God and Abraham, the their, their father of their faith, made this covenant. It's, a, it's in a lot of ways like sacred territory. You know that um, in American, our mindset is kind of like the Edmund uh, Pettus Bridge. You know what that is? That's that bridge where the civil rights people uh, in, in Alabama walked through for the civil rights movement. You guys are familiar with that? That's where like Martin Luther King and a whole bunch of people walked across this bridge. That's, like, that's significant because it, that place became like a national landmark because of how, you know, just, they just see that bridge, they walk by, and it, re- it makes them recall about the civil rights movement. Now imagine if one day someone went on that bridge and decided to make a law of the land that applies to all the United States saying, let's, just can, let's, let's bring back segregation. You, it would be offensive to those who understand the significance of that bridge. Or another example is if, if someone was married, let's say at a church, not, maybe not this one, but at, at any church. They were married at church with, uh, with this one particular, these two individuals get married at church. And one of the spouses choose to leave the, their, their spouse, finds in someone else, and kids, commits adultery or whatever, and, he, and goes back to the same church where he got his first marriage from. You know, to those who understand, who knows about this, this place, it's, it's offensive. And this is this picture here that what Abimelech is going to do in this land, it's offensive to those because they understand that this place is, is sacred to them. It has significance to their history. Shechem is one of those places. It's a place that was supposed to be, it's supposed to remind people of covenants. Now it's going to be a place of sin, a place that is now marked out by breaking of God's covenants. Uh, so, verse 1 he went to Shechem to his mother's relative and spoke to them, to the whole clan of the household of his mother's father, saying, Speak now. In the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that 70 men, all the sons of Jerubal, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Also remember that I am your bone and flesh. So Abimelech here goes back, and he, he meets his mother's side, and he, all the people there, and he makes this demand. He has this question, he demands a verdict. He tells them that, hey, do you really want these 70 uh, individuals uh, really, his half-siblings, to rule over you. You should have one. You should have me rule over you. He tells them that, hey, remember that I am your, I am your relative. I am, the bl- I am your blood and I am your flesh. Verse 3, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the hearing of all the leaders of Shechem, and they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our relative. These people, they were inclined to follow him. Everyone uh, thought this was a legit argument. At the very end of the verse, this made sense to them. Instead of having 70 individuals, they thought, oh, maybe, maybe we should. His only argument, really, his strongest argument was that, hey, I am your relative. 
Abimelech tells them to essentially commit murder. And again, these people surprisingly think that this is logical. Sin always makes you think that what you are doing makes perfect sense. Sin can make the most sensible person dumb. Sin will cause you to do things that when you stand back and look at it, it makes absolutely no sense. This is what's going on here. Look at verse 4. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows, and they followed him. 70 pieces of silver is not that much, and you think if Abimelech, if you look at this, you think that if Abimelech is willing to do this to his 70 of his half-siblings, it didn't dawn on them that, like, hey, maybe he might turn on us one day. He's, he's so quick to destroy his other siblings, he might actually do something to us. It didn't click that they can actually get hurt by this individual. The person that they're supporting could actually turn on them. Verse 5, Then he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. This this little stone is uh, it's what you would use to butcher cow. You know, it's what you would. It's like a, basically a giant cutting board. You know, the, they he took sixty nine of these brothers and, they, and he slaughtered them on this one place. And Jotham, the youngest one, hid. And he probably lost count. That's why I imagine he probably like at number fifty two or something. He's like, oh wait, I think that was fifty three, fifty two. Oh, whatever, just kill them all. And he and one of them hid themselves. Verse 6, all the men of Shechem, all the men of Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar which was in Shechem. The Israelites, instead of being offended by what just happened, now decide to make Abimelech king over them. What is interesting is that, remember when Gideon first started, he was, the angel of the Lord was by an oak tree, Right? He was by his oak, and now Abimelech is being made king by an oak pillar. Now, why would Abimelech do this? Why, what is Abimelech's, what's the point of all this? Why would Abimelech do all this? The reality is he just wanted to rule over these people. He wanted something. He desired it in his own heart. He was willing to do whatever he can to take it. He was driven by his own sinful desires and did all that he can to get what he wanted. Remember, the theme of this book is, is degradation. And the reason why that is is because they were all doing what is right in their own eyes. Later on in 2 Samuel 11, David did the same thing when it comes to Bathsheba. He saw Bathsheba, he, he lusted after her, and then he was willing to take her and then kill and then hide and do all that he can to take what he wanted. James chapter 1, verse 14, 15 is a familiar passage to all of us. James chapter 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Later on, James, James chapter 4, verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot Obtain, so you fight in quarrel, and you do not have because you do not ask. Sinful desires always lead to sinful actions. The biggest threat in the church is when people don't take sin seriously. 
you know that there is a false teacher among you, or you know that you yourself is a threat to a church, when you yourself or the other person do not take sin seriously. If you love your sin, you will do whatever it takes to fulfill your lust. You'll break whatever promise to fulfill your lust. You'll give up much of your life so that you can indulge in these momentary pleasures of your life. We must deal with sin in our lives or we will become a threat to not only ourselves but to those around us. Matthew chapter 5 tells us that we need to be a salt and light to the world. And one way for us to continue to maintain the flavor of salt is that we are a holy people. It loses effectiveness and usefulness when you give in to sin. And that's what false teachers like to do. Threats within the church, people who like to promote sin, it makes the church lose their effectiveness. Second Peter 2. Oh, we'll do Second Timothy. Second Timothy 3. Verse 1 to 5, it reads, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedience to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, malicious gossip, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied his power, avoid such men as these. Second Peter 2, this is another book that's, that tells that Peter's instructing them to, to guard against false prophets. Second Peter 2, verse 1 to 3, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who, brought, who, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Last one, Jude, verse 16 to 18. Uh, These are grumblers, Finding fault falling out their own lust, they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers falling after their own ungodly lust. The threats of the church are people who love their sin and want others to love sin as well. Sin is always subtle. When we think about sin uh, for us in our church, it's, it's not often that overt. In fact, it's when people ignore or downplay the law instead of openly violating it. And I wonder if that's you. Do you make these type of compromises in your life? Do you downplay sin? You know, the book Respectable Sin, there's a list of those sins that, are, that I think we, we don't really think about. You know, when we think of lying, we'll say, yeah, we won't lie, but we'll exaggerate, Right? We won't, we won't kill someone, but we'll kill their reputation by slandering and gossiping about them. You, know, you need to take sin seriously. Even the smallest sin can ruin your life. And that's what these false teachers, that's what the threat of the church is like, when people, first and foremost, do not take sin seriously. Not only is the biggest threat to the church when people in the church 
fail to see that sin is as sin. But secondly, the threat to church, a sign that these people are a threat to church, is that they ignore the word of God. They ignore the word of God, verse 7 to 21. Look at verse 7. Now when they told Jotham, he went up and stood up on, the mount, on, mount, on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and called out. Thus he said to them, listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Jotham cries out against them. Abimelech and his, has his coronation, and, and Jotham, the last survivor here, speaks up against Abimelech and the Israelites. He goes in, in a form, he, he does so in a form of a fable. Jotham sees the corruption, the murderous ways of Abimelech, and he cries out against them. He warns them of, of what Abimelech is going to do or what he will become. And yet these people are still willing to blindly follow him. Jotham speaks this parable as a way to warn them. Little did Jotham know, little did Abimelech know, little did the rest of the Israelites know that God is actually speaking through him. This is a prophetic message of judgment. This is a warning. And this is from the Lord to, to, to get them to see that what they're doing is wrong. Verse 8 says, this fable begins. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. And I like how it was in the Nazareth we used the word, once the trees. It's, it's like our modern day, if you could translate it, once upon a time. Um, he speaks of these trees, and, and it seems strange. I know we have like Lord of the Rings, there's like walking trees and stuff like that, but at the time, it's just like, okay, just think of a bunch of trees, but not like in the, like the wise sage type of trees like Lord of the Rings. Just think of dumb trees, just like looking, walking around, talking to plants. Okay, this is again a fable. It's not supposed to be real, but it will be something that has truth to it. Um, so he speaks to this, so this first tree, goes up to this olive tree, verse 9. But at the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave? Oh, he, oh, these, oh sorry, verse 8. But the trees went forth to anoint king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my, my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? Um, this is, is basically the olive tree. He's speaking to the olive tree, and, he, and the olive tree denies and rejects the offer because the olive tree itself has a lot of worth. It is in the high position. It has responsibilities. It has its job. Um, and this would be essentially a downgrade. He's, this, this olive tree understands that if I would rain over a bunch of these trees, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's just going down. Um, it's, yeah, it's a downgrade. It's not something that uh, he enjoys his position. He enjoys the way the thing that God has established him to do. So he denies it. Then, and this tree moves on to someone else. Then verse 10, then the tree said to the fig tree, you come rain over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good, fr- good fruit and go to wave over the trees? The trees then ask these figs, and figs are these little plants that was sweet and it has, has value because of, a, you know, because of a, the flavor and how it adds things to, to food. Uh, and they wanted this tree, this little fig tree, to reign over them. Uh, they wanted, but uh, they wanted to... Uh, you know, they want him to basically deny the function that God has given them. So he denies it. This, this first olive tree denies and the fig tree. Now they're going to another person or another plant. Uh, verse 13. But the vine, uh, then, verse 12, sorry. Then the tree said to the vine, you come reign over us. 
But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? This, this is, again, it's the same thing. He, they go up to this vine, and then they ask him. And again, the vine is worth more to, to, the, to, the, to the Israelites. To people then, they understood that the olive tree has value. It's, it, it was able to make people happy. And they chose to continue on what they were intended to do instead of reigning over these trees. So again, the tree fails and goes to someone else. This, this, these trees are persistent, and they're constantly being rejected, and they keep going and going and going. Verse 14, finally all the trees said to the bramble, you come reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in truth you're anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. A bramble or a thistle has zero value. It's basically like you know, those little tumbleweed type things. It's like a tree asking tumbleweed to give them shade, to, to watch over them. Now you know that a tree is obviously bigger than a tumbleweed. In LA, there are some tumbleweeds that are huge, like, like a truck can like hit it. And it'll, like, it was the size of trucks and stuff like that. When my professor had a truck, he said one of the cool things about living where he's at is that he could run over huge tumbleweeds. But no matter how big these tumbleweeds are, they're never gonna be as big as a tree. And the, and the, and the, these trees are asking something with zero value to reign over them. Jotham is, in some sense, is also insulting and being sarcastic to Abimelech. He's saying that this king that you guys are going to, this guy that you want to make king, he's, he's worthless. He's just a thorn. He just goes from one place to another. And the only good thing about Bramble is that they are good, they're flammable. They're, 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 these trees are asking these little things that could set them on fire to reign over them. And Jotham is making fun of Abimelech. He's saying he's low and he's prickly. And Jotham's trying to expose Abimelech for the wickedness that he is and even what he will do to them. And there is a theological uh, usage of this bramble because you understand the bramble, it should make you think about Genesis 3.18. When God said that he will curse the plant and the thorns come out, that's the bramble. So this is a picture of letting something useless as well as something sinful reign over you. Jotham is saying that, that, uh, that they're going to get someone that is wicked, someone that is a curse to reign over them. These trees want someone evil to reign over them because they are evil in their own hearts. They have evil in their own hearts. The bramble responds to him to take refuge in its shade. But the bramble, again, is useless. And again, it's a threat to the trees. Abimelech is that threat to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 16. Now, therefore, if you have dealt in truth and integrity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have dealt with him as he deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. But you have risen against my father, father's house today and have killed his sons, 70 men on the stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his maidservant, king over the men of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have dealt in truth and integrity with Jerubal, and his house this day rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out 
from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and consumed Abimelech. Then Jotham escaped and fled and went to Beer and remained there because of Abimelech, his brother. Jotham reminds them of what Gideon has done for them, how his father risked his life to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Midianites. But yet, this is the type of thanks that you get. He, they, they killed most of their kids, most of Gideon's kids. These people did not honor the instrument of the Lord. They were not thankful for him. They essentially forgot that he was God's chosen one to deliver them from the hands of the Midians. And you remember in the beginning of chapter 6, they were crying out to the Lord. They were weeping and groaning. And God raised up Gideon, and they forgot all of that. This fable is a word of judgment. He's saying if Abimelech is indeed the one that's meant to be king, make him king. But if it's not, may he be the reason for your demise. He is warning them about this madman. And the Israelites fail to heed this warning. Again, this isn't the first time Israelites, the Israelites will do this. In First Kings, they will do that when they ask Saul to reign over them. This should be a warning to repent, but they don't because they are in their own sin. Sin makes you fail to see the warning signs that are in front of you. It clouds your judgment. It blinds you from reality. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Vegas, not because we like to party up in Vegas in Sin City, uh, but because we're at a wedding, and uh, I was the best man at this wedding, and we went to, for the bachelor party, uh, we went to this VR thing where, I guess, like, Lucas Arts and all these people, like, made this little VR game. And it was kind of cool because they put on this vest and they put on this helmet. And at first, you don't really see anything. You're just kind of like, hello, welcome to this VR. It's called The Void. Like, welcome to The Void. And then we're like, okay, when did it start? And they brought us to a room, and all of a sudden, the, the, the VR thing turns on. And we're like, okay, we see the whole like, place turn into like a Star Wars-themed room. And then when we looked at our hands, they had this augmented reality thing in the goggles. So it made our hands seem like we're wearing like, the Stormtrooper outfit. And we're like, whoa, we're Stormtroopers! And we're like, all like, like, touching each other, like, oh, whoa, you're wearing the armor! And it was really cool, because you know, we knew objectively that it was like, a game, but then we were like tripping out. Because at like, one point, we're like, walking, and there's like lava everywhere, and they put, they put like heaters in there, so it feels like you're being, like there's like warmth. And, like, and even when they're like the shooting parts, when we get hit, like it would, it would actually vibrate the, the chest. And then one of my, the, the groom actually, he got hit, and he was like, it burns, it burns! He was like rolling on the ground, like, dude, this is just a game, man, calm down. And one scene toward the end of this, where you see Darth Vader, he's like coming after you with his lightsaber, and one of the guys, one of the grooms, is freaked out, like he tripped on the floor and was like panicking. And it's like, again, this is just the game. Relax, calm down. And, and I wish I had that recording of like people watching us, like without the VR, and see how ridiculous we looked. But it wasn't real. And after we took it off, we're like, dude, why did you trip? And it's like, dude, man, he got me. Darth Vader got me. He got me, man. Sin works in the same way that it clouds your judgment. It puts something in front of your eyes that is not real. It's far more sinister than that. It makes you believe something that is not really there. It blurs the lines that's set by God. It makes you ignore the warning signs that is before you. The Israelites' sin blinded them from seeing sinfulness in Abimelech and warnings against sin from Jotham. They saw what they wanted to see, and they turned a blind eye to sin. 
And if we ignore the words of God, you will, it will ruin your life because that's, how, that's the, the nature of sin. It wrecks your life. A person who is a threat to the church will always find excuses not to listen to Scripture. False teachers or people that are a threat to the church will always find ways to justify sin or make loopholes about God's word to ignore submitting to God's word. The world, is always, the world is like that, right? You understand the people outside the world, they always make excuses on why they should never submit to God's word. But that should not be in the church. The church should not be people that are constantly thinking of excuses. You see a command in scripture, it says, honor your father and mother. You don't think, okay, what, okay, what are the exceptions to that? You see things like do not steal. You don't think to yourself, oh, what about this one scenario? Or you think about the, I mean, you know, the most common thing when I talk to non-Christians about sin is like, they, when you're about lying, they always go, oh, what if you're in World War II and you try to hide the truth from the Nazis? And I'm like, look, you're not going to be a World War II. Chill out. Right? Have you committed like, lies in your life? You have you lied in your life? You know, people always try to make these, these mental gymnastics so that they do not have to submit to God's word. And the Bible warns us against the type of thinking. It warns us against the reality of sin. The problem is not actually the world promoting sin. The problem is when people in the church promoting sin. Christians must be willing to deal with sin. Let me ask you, are there passages in Scripture that you know are commands, but the first thought that comes to your mind is, but what about this? You fill in the blank, you put a scenario, you think of all of these exceptions instead of just trusting in God's word. You see passages like, don't be anxious, right? That's an that's a, that's a imperative from Paul in Philippians. But yet then when these moments come, do you think, oh, well, my trial allows that? Or when you think about lust, oh, well, like, I know lust is bad, but it's okay because I've been single for a very long time. What excuses do you make in your life that compromises your walk with the Lord? And when you keep doing that, over time, it will be like Romans 1 for you. The Lord will give you up over to your sin. Eventually, you will promote that within the context of the church. False teachers or people that are a threat to the church will not take God's word seriously. How do you know if someone is a threat to the church? Or how do you know, how do you guard yourself from being a threat to the church? Well, first, you ignore sin. Second, you ignore the word of God. And lastly, you ignore the judgment of God. We'll go from chapter 22 to the end of the chapter. Be mindful and watchful that the threats to the church are people who ignore the judgment of God. Those who deny the threats of judgment is a threat to the church and the people of God. Verse 22, now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Three years under Abimelech rule and it's like, the, if you look through the entire book of Judges, it's actually the shortest reign of anyone. All this, some of the judges reigned like 20-something years, 10 years. This guy only reigned three years. His reign was shorter than the presidential term. And these three years that he reigned, the, the, the entire nation of Israel was not, they didn't think, okay, maybe this is a bad idea. They didn't think, oh, maybe we should have listened to Jotham. They spent three years, and instead of actually going to God, God had to go intercede. Look at verse 23. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the, peop- and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, so that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubal might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hand to kill his brother. 
Now, you understand that these people knew about what happens if they commit murder. They knew the judgment of God, and they knew God's word, but they, choo- they chose to ignore it. The people, uh, the God uh, sent a spirit and some in different commentaries to debate on whether God allowed a demonic activity to happen or was it some sort of division. Either way, that's not, the, that's not the main emphasis. The point is that God is sovereign in raising up people and allowing the people to turn on Abimelech. In reality, it's actually they both turn against each other. That loyalty that they once had, oh, we're family, is no longer there anymore. This is divine judgment. God is rendering to him like the same way that he treated God's anointed in his family. Verse 25, the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on top of the mountains, and they robbed all, the, all who might pass by them along the road. It was told to Abimelech. So these Shechemites or these other Israelites hired what would look like marauders or mercenaries, and they were hiding in these areas, and they were just basically like, if they're hiding in bushes, and they see someone, they just jump out and like beat them up and then take their stuff and then hide, <laughs> go back to the bushes. You know, they just made it hard. They made it difficult for people to live there, to go on the roads. Remember, this is why I said in the beginning of Judges that at the end of this book, it's hard to just go from one place or another. It's because these people are becoming savages. They start doing uh, what's, what's in their own heart, their own sin, and they start to attack one another. These mercenaries attempt to make Abimelech's life difficult and... They hope to basically start trouble. But Abimelech became aware of what is happening, and these people uh, placed around would eventually get, um, eventually they'll, they'll, they'll get what's coming for them. Verse 26. So Gaul, the son of Ebed, came with his relative and crossed over to Shechem, and the men of Shechem put their trust in him. Look how fast their hearts turned. Right? I mean, we know that this is just the typical Israelites. Their hearts were so easily turned towards, uh, away from God to false idols. Now they're even, in, in terms of their own people, so, their hearts were just so quickly turning against Abimelech. Now they just trust this person, Gaul. And uh, verse 27, they went out into the field and gathered the grapes of their vineyards and, tr- and trot them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and cursed Abimelech. Then Gaul, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech and who is and who is Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubal and Zebul, not his lieutenant? Serve the men of Hamor, and the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? This man named Gaul is a, is a pagan worshiper, and he um, became some sort of hero to the people of Shechem. The, this people began to challenge Abimelech's leadership, and, and in this place, that sounds like a, it's almost like a, like a bar, like a pagan bar. Like imagine a bar, like a church that became a bar. That's kind of like what's going on here. This is false religion that like, uh, they're drinking and they're like, talking about Abimelech and they're cursing him. And what is interesting is that Abimelech's persuasion earlier about ruling them no longer applies. It doesn't seem to matter the fact that he is actually related to them. And Gaul here makes this open challenge against Abimelech. Uh, verse, uh, verse 29. Would therefore that this people were under my authority, then I would remove Abimelech. And he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. This, this doesn't this sound familiar. It sounds familiar because he's like, oh, if you're under my rule, then I will take care of you. That's the same thing with what Abimelech said earlier. Right? Three years early, he said that, oh, you don't want those 70 people to rule over you, do you? You want me to rule over you. You want, you want me to, to be your king. Verse 
30, when Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaul, the sons of Ebed, his anger burned. He sent messengers to Abimelech deceitfully, saying, Behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed, and his relative have come to Shechem, and behold, they are stirring, stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, arise by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, you shall rise early and rush upon the city. And behold, when he and the people who are with him come out against you, you shall do to them whatever you can. This Zubul is like kind of like this little spy. You know, he's like a lieutenant, but somehow he's still uh, he's still kind of in this in this pagan area again. This is not a go and do likewise. It's just showing how evil the people of Israel has become. But they, uh, he's this little spy. He tells Abimelech what's going on. So he gives them this plan of, like, of this ambush. Like, go early, hide in the mountains. And when it's time to come in the morning, when they least expect it, go and attack them. And um, he does this. Verse 34. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him arose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. Now Gaul, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech and the people were, who were with them arose from the, from the ambush. When Gaul saw the, the people, he said to Zubal, Look, people are coming down from the top of the mountains. But Zubal said to him, You are seeing the shadows of the mountain as if they were men. I'm just trying to imagine. He's, like, he's basically lying to him. He's like, oh, those aren't people. Like the pitchforks, the fire, the night swords. No, those, those, those are just shadows. Ignore that. It, it just, it, it'll, it'll come and go. And then... Uh, Gull in thir- verse 37, Gull said it, spoke again and said, Behold, people are coming down from the highest part of the land, and one company comes by the way of the, the, of the diviner's oak. Then Zubal said to him, Where is your boasting now with which you said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Is this not the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. So Gaul went out before them, before the leaders of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased them and fled before them, and many fell wounded to the entrance of the gate. Then Abimelech remained at Arthma, but Zebul drove out Gaul and his relatives so they could not remain in Shechem. So he, this, this whole battle begins, and you see really the destructive nature of sin. Right? These people are now killing one another. They're like ambushing each other, burning each other, and we see later on that the, in verse 45, uh, I guess read from 442, now came out the next day that the people went to the, out to the field and it was told to Abimelech. So he took his people and divided them into three companies and lay in the way in the field. Again, something about like fields. There must be a lot of fields and like hiding in bushes. Like everyone likes to hide in like, it's like I'm imagining like little children like, oh, let's play hide and seek. And they're like hiding behind like tall grass. That's kind of what's going to do. It's supposed to look ridiculous to you. So he took the people, and they did, uh, coming, uh, when he looked and saw the people coming out from the city, he rose against them and slew them. Then Abimelech and the company who was with him dashed forward and stood in the entrance of the city gate, and, two, and the other two companies then dashed against all who were in the field and slew them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. Then he raised the city and sowed it with salt." So he burned the sacred place. Remember, Shechem was a, was part, or Shechem, the whole city was like, it was a unique place. And he, now he's like burning this place, parts of this place to the ground, and he's putting salt on it. And he, again, these are to his own people. Salt, uh, if you understand how salt works, and especially when you go on plants, it takes years before the plant can grow again. He's basically uh, destroying this place to a point where it takes years for it to recover. Again, we see this destructive nature of sin. 
all the things that the Bible speaks about, how sin destroys everything, comes to fruition. Death goes wherever sin goes. In our lives, if we fail to turn from sin ourselves, it will, and if we allow it to reign in our lives, it will hurt us. And oftentimes, it was too late when we realized how bad sin is. Verse 46, when all, the leaders of the, uh, when all of the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the inner chambers of the temple of El-Bereth. It was told to Abimelech, and all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. So Abimelech went up to the Mount Zalum, he and all the people who were with them, and Abimelech took an axe in his hand, cut down a branch from the tree, and lifted it and laid it on, the shoulder, on, on his shoulder. Then he said to the people who were with him, what you have seen me do, hurry and do likewise. All the people cut down each one his branch and followed Abimelech and put on the inner chambers and set the inner chamber on fire over those inside so that all the men of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. The other Shechem leaders heard about this and they tried to hide. And Abimelech heard about that where they were hiding, he burned this place down. And this is said in verse 49 that thousands of their leaders died. Doesn't this sound like a fulfillment of what Jotham said earlier, that if this guy is not truly leader, let fire come out of his mouth. This is, this is God's warning from before, and the judgment is taking place right before their eyes. Verse 50, Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he camped against Thebes, and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the center of the city, and all the men and women with all the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. Abimelech decided to attack this other city called Thebes. It's, a, it's considered like, kind of like a satellite uh, city that's part of Shechem. It seemed like it's a random act, and, and this is, again, it's not really random because we understand the nature of Abimelech, right? He's a very violent individual. He just thought, okay, I need to make an example. I want other people to know that I am king. So he, just, he did this, ma- this seemingly random killing. And then he had different commentaries to be why he did it. In the end, it was like, it's unknown. The people did not know exactly why he did because the scripture doesn't say it. But we can only infer that based on his character that this is just typical Abimelech. He probably did it, again, to reinforce that he is the leader. Verse 50 said that Abimelech captured it. And verse 53, but a certain woman threw in, threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his arm bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me so that it will not be said a woman slew me. So the young man pierced, through, pierced him through and he died. And the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead and each departed to his home. And suddenly, seemingly like random events, this random lady that happened to have this upper millstone, and upper millstone's like, I guess to our mind, might be like a cutting board or something. And this lady, when she was like, when the city was getting burned down, decided, I'm going to take this cutting board with me. And I'm just trying to imagine why would someone take that? Of all the things you take in your house, why would you take this cutting board thing? She grabs this cutting board, and in God's sovereign timing, was that's the instrument that God used to stop Abimelech. She hurls it out the window, and it crushes the skull and kills him. Again, this is not a really small, this is not a big object. This little, again, think of like a little hard cutting board thrown over a tower. If you know how gravity works, it, it increases in exponential speed by the second. 
And this rock destroyed, this powerful warrior, was something a woman used to crush grain, essentially. You have to remember, in the, in the warrior culture, to die in the hands of someone of the same rank or superior, it's, it's considered noble. It's considered, like, worthy. But to be killed by an inferior enemy, and in this case, a random woman with a cutting board, and with zero military, military background, would be shameful and embarrassing. And it is embarrassing, right? It's like, oh, man, this lady. It's not, I'm not even talking about the gender thing. It's just the fact that she just threw this thing over the tower and crushes his head. And this is why Abimelech wanted to be killed. Now, he said, like, he, oh, I don't want anyone to know. And, of course, in God's humor and judgment that he kept it in Scripture so that everyone knows. Everyone knows. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. Also God returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their heads, and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal, came upon them. All of this happened because it was God's judgment on Abimelech for what he's done, all of his sin. He had to pay for his sin. He, had, he was judged by God for the sin that he committed. God used Jotham to warn Israel, but by the time they realized it, or, or when they experienced God's wrath, it is already too late. And I think some of you are in the same boat. You're living in sin, but be, but be warned that God do, goes after you because of your sin. And but when God does, it, is, it will be too late. God was missing throughout this entire chapter, and they did, and the reason why that is because they did what's right in their own eyes. They didn't submit to God's word. They didn't have any repentance. God needed to save them from themselves. God had to intervene so that these people would know that what they're doing is going to be destructive for the entire nation. Sin and compromise came from within, and God needed to remove the threat that came from within the camp. Some hope because we see this as like God, there's still hope for the nation of Israel, that God is still willing to act, that there's still hope for these people, and there's hope for you today. You could be living in your sin right now, but there's still hope. The moment that you die, you cross into eternity, then that's when hope is over. But until then, there is still hope. We hear these messages every week on Sunday and Friday about how we need to give our life to Christ. These are all the warning passages. These are all warning things for us to make sure that our lives is right with the Lord. And, but yeah, at the same time, we look at this text, this is how far Israel has fallen. And then, sadly, because we know there's more chapters that will continue to fall. This is how far the Israel have gone that they have, they're now going against themselves. Do you remember how a few weeks ago I said in, old, in Hebrew literature there's a thing called the chiastic structure, like the burger thing, right? The, the middle of the meat is the most important part. If you, a different, I read this thing recently, and I had to wrestle through it, like, is this true? But if you were to use that chiastic structure on the entire book of Judges, the life of Gideon and Abimelech is, takes the central, I guess it would be the, the meat of the entire book of Judges. And it makes sense because, the book of, because their story was about how they cried out to God, God saves them, then they forget God, and then they, and then they turn to other idols, they turn to other things except for God, and they start destroying themselves because everyone there did what's right in their own eyes. They compromised from within, and, at the, and this is the apex of the entire narrative is the rise and fall of, Gideon, of, the, of the Gideon uh, legacy or dynasty. 
They did what was right in their own eyes, and they destroyed themselves. Again, living in Israel was dangerous because you had to worry not only about outside people, and not only about not only just the nations outside, but you're worried about the people that are around you. Their sin brought to them to a state of constant paranoia and distrust and backstabbing and murder. Their compromise and sin led them to the state of persistent danger. And so it is with the church. The biggest threat to the church is from within the church. Compromise and sin is the biggest threat to the church. Those who ignore the judgment of God will always live in sin. The fear of the Lord is what leads to repentance. And I fear that there are some of you that are like that. You're not actually watching, you're guarding your life from sin. You're making all of these small compromises. You're, you're living in sin. You're making excuses for sin. And you understand that every time you make an excuse for sin, you're ignoring what the severity of sin and the consequences of that sin. People who don't take sin seriously don't take hell seriously. They don't understand that their sin was paid for on the cross. Instead, they see sin as, oh, it's just something that's in this life. Let the, the reality of hell, the, the judgment of God, cause you to turn from your sin. And this is something that I think our culture does not like to talk about. Our culture hates the idea of sin because it's a terrible place. But Jesus in the New Testament speaks the most about sin as this place that is the place of damnation, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the reason why people go there is because of their own sin. And there are many people that are in hell that have not taken sin seriously when they were in this life. And may that not be you individually. It may not that be us as a church. Remove sin in your life before you're removed from the presence of God. So how do you know if you're a threat to the church? Or how do you know if someone is a threat to the church? They ignore sin, they ignore God's word, and they ignore God's judgment. In the book of Galatians, it speaks about walking in the flesh, and we really reap what we sow. If you are reaping in sin, you will receive God's judgment. And Israel needed God to save them from themselves, and you too need someone to save you from your own sin if you have not repented. If you want to be someone that, that lives in obedience to the Lord, you must put off sin. If you are a Christian today and you're struggling with sin, continue fighting sin and take sin seriously. This is the war that we have in our life, that we're constantly trying to battle sin. We ask God for grace, we study scripture, we fill our mind with truth so that we can guard ourselves from sin. But if you are not a believer today, you can hide it, you can come in and lie all that you want to, to call yourself a Christian. You can do all the Christian things. You can deceive all of us here, but you cannot deceive the Lord. You must understand that your sin needs to be dealt with. And just like Abimelech, his sin, he had to take it upon himself. God rendered to him the judgment that he deserved. And if you have not given your life to Christ, he will give you what you deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your sovereignty in recording all of God, of your word to us so that we can see the warnings of what we can become. And Lord, we pray that um, for those who, of us who are still living in sin, that you soften our hearts and you make us see the severity and the reality of sin. Sin is deadly and it's offensive, it's gross, and it's ugly in your eyes. But yet, 
is in light of all of the sin that you're still willing to love us by sending your son to come into the world to die for our sins. Oh, we don't deserve your grace and your mercy, but you show it every time. For those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you can soften their hearts to the gospel. For those who think that they are a believer but are really deluding themselves, that you will give them humility, that they'll let them see how their life does not coincide with your holiness and your word, and there needs to be an account for that sin. And I ask, Lord, that you can give them, these individuals who do not know you, grace so that they can open their eyes to see the need of your son to be their savior. For all of us, Lord, guard our hearts from sin. Keep us from compromises. Give us vigilance so that we know um, how to fight sin, to flee from sin, to resist temptation, and to trust in your word and the promises of obedience, Lord. We ask all of these in your son's precious name. Amen. So from 